Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 6 The next day, the friend and legal advisor of Agnes Lockwood, Mr. Troy, called on her by appointment in the evening. Mrs. Ferrari, still persisting in the conviction of her husband's death, had sufficiently recovered to be present at the consultation. Assisted by Agnes, she told the lawyer the little that was known relating to Ferrari's disappearance, and then produced the correspondence connected with that event. Mr. Troy read first the three letters addressed by Ferrari to his wife. Secondly, the letter written by Ferrari's courier friend, describing his visit to the palace and his interview with Lady Mountberry. And thirdly, the one line of anonymous writing which had accompanied the extraordinary gift of a thousand pounds to Ferrari's wife. Well known at a later period as the lawyer who acted for Lady Leodard in the case of theft, generally described as the case of my lady's money, Mr. Troy was not only a man of learning and experience in his profession, he was also a man who had seen something of society at home and abroad. He possessed a keen eye for character, a quaint humor, and a kindly nature which had not been deteriorated even by a lawyer's professional experience of mankind. With all these personal advantages, it is a question, nevertheless, whether he was the fittest advisor whom Agnes could have chosen under the circumstances. Little Mrs. Ferrari, with many domestic merits, was an essentially commonplace woman. Mr. Troy was the last person living who was likely to attract her sympathies. He was the exact opposite of a commonplace man. "'She looks very ill, poor thing.' In these words, the lawyer opened the business of the evening, referring to Mrs. Ferrari as unceremoniously as if she had been out of the room. "'She has suffered a terrible shock.' Agnes answered. Mr. Troy turned to Mrs. Ferrari and looked at her again, with the interest due to the victim of a shock. He drummed absently with his fingers on the table. At last, he spoke to her. My good lady, you don't really believe that your husband is dead. Mrs. Ferrari put her handkerchief to her eyes. The word dead was ineffectual to express her feelings. Murdered! she said sternly, behind her handkerchief. "'Why and by whom?' Mr. Troy asked. Mrs. Ferrari seemed to have some difficulty in answering. "'You have read my husband's letters, sir,' she began. "'I believe he discovered—' She got as far as that, and there she stopped. "'What did he discover?' "'There are limits to human patience, "'even the patience of a bereaved wife,' This cool question irritated Mrs. Ferrari into expressing herself plainly at last. 
"'He discovered Lady Mountberry and the Baron,' she answered, with a burst of hysterical vehemence. "'The Baron is no more that vile woman's brother than I am. "'The wickedness of those two wretches came to my poor dear husband's knowledge. "'The lady's maid left her place on account of it. "'If Ferrari had gone away too, he would have been alive at this moment. "'They have killed him. "'I say they have killed him to prevent it from getting to Lord Mountberry's ears.' So in short, sharp sentences, and in louder and louder accents, Mrs. Ferrari stated her opinion of the case. Still, keeping his own view in reserve, Mr. Troy listened with an expression of satirical approval. "'Very strongly stated, Mrs. Ferrari,' he said. "'You build up your sentences well. You clinch your conclusions in a workmanlike manner. If you had been a man, you would have made a good lawyer.' "'You would have taken juries by the scruff of their necks. "'Complete the case, my good lady, complete the case. "'Tell us next who sent you this letter, enclosing the banknote. "'The two wretches who murdered Mr. Ferrari "'would hardly put their hands in their pockets "'and send you a thousand pounds. "'Who is it, eh? "'I see the postmark on the letter is Venice. "'Have you any friend in that interesting city "'with a large heart and a purse to correspond "'who has been led into the secret?' "'and who wishes to console you, anonymously.' "'It was not easy to reply to this. "'Mrs. Ferrari began to feel the first inward approaches "'of something like hatred towards Mr. Troy. "'I don't understand you, sir,' she answered. "'I don't think this is a joking matter.' "'Agnes interfered for the first time. "'She drew her chair a little nearer to her legal counselor and friend.' "'What is the most probable explanation in your opinion?' she asked. "'I shall offend Mrs. Ferrari if I tell you,' Mr. Troy answered. "'No, sir, you won't,' cried Mrs. Ferrari, "'hating Mr. Troy undisguisedly by this time. "'The lawyer leaned back in his chair. "'Very well,' he said, in his most good-humoured manner. "'Let's have it out. "'Observe, madam, I don't dispute your view of the position of affairs "'at the palace in Venice.' "'You have your husband's letters to justify you. "'And you have also the significant fact "'that Lady Mountberry's maid did really leave the house. "'We will say, then, that Lord Mountberry has presumably "'been made the victim of a foul wrong, "'that Mr. Ferrari was the first to find it out, "'and that the guilty persons had reason to fear "'not only that he would acquaint Lord Mountberry with his discovery, "'but that he would be a principal witness against them "'if the scandal was made public in a court of law.' Now, Mark, admitting all this, I draw a totally different conclusion from the conclusion at which you have arrived. Here is your husband left in this miserable household of three, under very awkward circumstances for him. What does he do? But for the banknote and the written message sent to you with it, I should say that he had wisely withdrawn himself from association with the disgraceful discovery and exposure by taking secretly to flight. The money modifies this view, unfavorably so far as Mr. Ferrari is concerned. I still believe he is keeping out of the way. But I now say he is paid for keeping out of the way, and that banknote there on the table is the price of his absence, sent by the guilty persons to his wife. Mrs. Ferrari's watery gray eyes brightened suddenly, Mrs. Ferrari's dull, drab-colored complexion became enlivened by a glow of brilliant red. "'It's false!' she cried. 
It's a burning shame to speak of my husband in that way. I told you I should offend you, said Mr. Troy. Agnes interposed once more in the interests of peace. She took the offended wife's hand. She appealed to the lawyer to reconsider that side of his theory which reflected harshly on Ferrari. While she was still speaking, the servant interrupted her by entering the room with a visiting card. It was the card of Henry Westwick, and there was an anonymous request written on it in pencil. I bring bad news. Let me see you for a minute downstairs. Agnes immediately left the room. Alone with Mrs. Ferrari, Mr. Troy permitted his natural kindness of heart to show itself on the surface at last. He tried to make his peace with the courier's wife. "'You have every claim, my good soul, to resent a reflection cast upon your husband,' he began. "'I may even say that I respect you for speaking so warmly in his defense.' At the same time, remember that I am bound, in such a serious matter as this, to tell you what is really in my mind. I can have no intention of offending you, seeing that I am a total stranger to you and to Mr. Ferrari. A thousand pounds is a large sum of money, and a poor man may excusably be tempted by it to do nothing worse than to keep out of the way for a while. My only interest, acting on your behalf, is to get at the truth. If you will give me time... I see no reason to despair of finding your husband yet. Ferrari's wife listened, without being convinced. Her narrow little mind, filled to its extreme capacity by her unfavorable opinion of Mr. Troy, had no room left for the process of correcting its first impression. I am much obliged to you, sir, was all she said. Her eyes were more communicative. Her eyes added, in their language, You may say what you please, I will never forgive you to my dying day. Mr. Troy gave it up. He composedly wheeled his chair around, put his hands in his pockets, and looked out of the window. After an interval of silence, the drawing-room door was opened. Mr. Troy wheeled around again briskly to the table, expecting to see Agnes. To his surprise, there appeared in her place a perfect stranger to him, a gentleman in the prime of life with a marked expression of pain and embarrassment on his handsome face. He looked at Mr. Troy and bowed gravely. "'I'm so unfortunate as to have brought news to Miss Agnes Lockwood, which has greatly distressed her,' he said. "'She has retired to her room. "'I am requested to make her excuses and to speak to you in her place.' Having introduced himself in those terms, he noticed Mrs. Ferrari and held out his hand to her kindly. "'It is some years since we last met, Emily,' he said." "'I am afraid you have almost forgotten the Master Henry of old times.' "'Emily, in some little confusion, made her acknowledgments "'and begged to know if she could be of any use to Miss Lockwood. "'The old nurse is with her,' Henry answered. "'They will be better left together.' "'He turned once more to Mr. Troy. "'I ought to tell you,' he said, "'that my name is Henry Westwick. "'I am the younger brother of the late Lord Mountberry.' "'The late Lord Mountberry?' "'Mr. Troy exclaimed. "'My brother died at Venice yesterday evening. "'There is the telegram.' "'With that startling answer, "'he handed the paper to Mr. Troy. "'The message was in these words. "'Lady Mountberry, Venice, "'to Stephen Robert Westwick, "'Newbury's Hotel, London. "'It is useless to take the journey. "'Lord Mountberry died of bronchitis "'at 8.40 this evening. 
all needful details by post. "'Was this expected, sir?' the lawyer asked. "'I cannot say that it has taken us entirely by surprise,' Henry answered. "'My brother Stephen, who is now the head of the family, "'received a telegram three days since, "'informing him that alarming symptoms had declared themselves "'and that a second physician had been called in. "'He telegraphed back to say that he had left Ireland for London "'on his way to Venice, "'and to direct that any further message might be sent to his hotel. "'The reply came in a second telegram.' It announced that Lord Mountberry was in a state of insensibility, and that, in his brief intervals of consciousness, he recognized nobody. My brother was advised to wait in London for later information. The third telegram is now in your hands. That is all I know up to the present time. Happening to look at the courier's wife, Mr. Troy was struck by the expression of blank fear which showed itself in the woman's face. "'Mrs. Ferrari,' he said, "'have you heard what Mr. Westwick has just told me?' "'Every word of it, sir. "'Have you any questions to ask?' "'No, sir.' "'You seem to be alarmed,' the lawyer persisted. "'Is it still about your husband?' "'I shall never see my husband again, sir. "'I have thought so all along, as you know. "'I feel sure of it now.' "'Sure of it? "'After what you have just heard?' "'Yes, sir. Can you tell me why?' "'No, sir. It's a feeling I have. I can't tell why.' "'Oh, a feeling,' Mr. Troy repeated, in a tone of compassionate contempt. "'When it comes to feelings, my good soul—' "'He left the sentence unfinished and rose to take his leave of Mr. Westwick. "'The truth is he began to feel puzzled himself, "'and he did not choose to let Mrs. Ferrari see it. "'Except the expression of my sympathy, sir,' he said to Mr. Westwick politely. "'I wish you good evening.' "'Henry turned to Mrs. Ferrari as the lawyer closed the door. "'I have heard of your trouble, Emily, from Miss Lockwood. "'Is there anything I can do to help you?' "'Nothing, sir. Thank you. "'Perhaps I had better go home after what has happened. "'I will call tomorrow and see if I can be of any use to Miss Agnes. "'I am very sorry for her.' She stole away, with her formal curtsy, her noiseless step, and her obstinate resolution to take the gloomiest view of her husband's case. Henry Westwick looked round in the solitude of the little drawing-room. There was nothing to keep him in the house, and yet he lingered in it. It was something to be even near Agnes, to see the things belonging to her that were scattered about the room. There in the corner was her chair, with her embroidery on the work-table by its side. On the little easel near the window was her last drawing, not quite finished yet. The book she had been reading lay on the sofa, with her tiny pencil-case in it to mark the place at which she had left off. One after another he looked at the objects that reminded him of the woman whom he loved, took them up tenderly, and laid them down again with a sigh. Ah, how far! "'how unattainably far from him she was still. "'She will never forget Mount Barry,' he thought to himself "'as he took up his hat to go. "'Not one of us feels his death as she feels it. "'Miserable, miserable wretch! "'How she loved him!' "'In the street, as Henry closed the house door, "'he was stopped by a passing acquaintance. "'A wearisome, inquisitive man, 
doubly unwelcome to him at that moment. "'Sad news, Westwick, this about your brother. "'Rather an unexpected death, wasn't it? "'We never heard at the club that Mount Barry's lungs were weak. "'What will the insurance offices do?' "'Henry started. "'He had never thought of his brother's life insurance. "'What could the offices do but pay?' A death by bronchitis, certified by two physicians, was surely the least disputable of all deaths. "'I wish you hadn't put that question into my head,' he broke out irritably. "'Ah,' said his friend, "'you think the widow will get the money? "'So do I. "'So do I.'" Chapter 7 Some days later, the insurance offices, two in number, received the formal announcement of Lord Mountberry's death, from her ladyship's London solicitors. The sum insured in each office was £5,000, on which one year's premium only had been paid. In the face of such a pecuniary emergency as this, the directors thought it desirable to consider their position. The medical advisers of the two offices, who had recommended the insurance of Lord Mountberry's life, were called into council over their own reports. The result excited some interest among persons connected with the business of life insurance. Without absolutely declining to pay the money, the two offices, acting in concert, decided on sending a commission of inquiry to Venice for the purposes of obtaining further information. Mr. Troy received the earliest intelligence of what was going on. He wrote at once to communicate his news to Agnes, adding what he considered to be a valuable hint in these words. You are intimately acquainted, I know, with Lady Barville, the late Lord Mountberry's eldest sister. The solicitors employed by her husband are also the solicitors to one of the two insurance offices. There may possibly be something in the report of the Commission of Inquiry touching on Ferrari's disappearance. Ordinary persons would not be permitted, of course, to see such a document. But a sister of the late Lord is so near a relative as to be an exception to general rules. If Sir Theodore Barville puts it on that footing, the lawyers, even if they do not allow his wife to look at the report, will at least answer any discreet questions she may ask referring to it. Let me hear what you think of this suggestion at your earliest convenience. The reply was received by return of post. Agnes declined to avail herself of Mr. Troy's proposal. My interference, innocent as it was, she wrote, has already been productive of such deplorable results that I cannot and dare not stir any further in the case of Ferrari. If I had not consented to let that unfortunate man refer to me by name, the Lord Mountberry would never have engaged him, and his wife would have been spared the misery and suspense from which she is suffering now. I would not even look at the report to which you allude if it was placed in my hands." I have heard more than enough already of that hideous life in the palace at Venice. If Mrs. Ferrari chooses to address herself to Lady Barville with your assistance, that is, of course, quite another thing. But even in this case, I must make it a positive condition that my name shall not be mentioned. Forgive me, dear Mr. Troy. I am very unhappy and very unreasonable. But I am only a woman, and you must not expect too much from me. Foiled in this direction, the lawyer next advised making the attempt to discover the present address of Lady Mountberry's English maid. This excellent suggestion had one drawback. It could only be carried out by spending money, 
and there was no money to spend. Mrs. Ferrari shrank from the bare idea of making any use of the thousand-pound note. It had been deposited in the safekeeping of a bank. If it was even mentioned in her hearing, she shuddered and referred to it with melodramatic fervor as my husband's blood money. So, under stress of circumstances, the attempt to solve the mystery of Ferrari's disappearance was suspended for a while. It was the last month of the year 1860. The Commission of Inquiry was already at work, having begun its investigations on December 6th. On the 10th, the term for which the late Lord Mountberry had hired the Venetian Palace expired. News by telegram reached the insurance offices that Lady Mountberry had been advised by her lawyers to leave for London with as little delay as possible. Baron Rivar, it was believed, would accompany her to England, but would not remain in that country, unless his services were absolutely required by her ladyship. The Baron, well known as an enthusiastic student of chemistry, had heard of certain recent discoveries in connection with that science in the United States, and was anxious to investigate them personally. These items of news, collected by Mr. Troy, were duly communicated to Mrs. Ferrari, whose anxiety about her husband made her a frequent, a too frequent, visitor at the lawyer's office. She attempted to relate what she had heard to her good friend and protectress. Agnes steadily refused to listen, and positively forbade any further conversation relating to Lord Mountberry's wife, now that Lord Mountberry was no more. "'You have Mr. Troy to advise you,' she said, "'and you are welcome to what little money I can spare, if money is wanted.' "'All I ask in return is that you will not distress me. "'I am trying to separate myself from remembrances.' "'Her voice faltered. "'She paused to control herself. "'From remembrances,' she resumed, "'which are sadder than ever since I have heard of Lord Mountberry's death. "'Help me, by your silence, to recover my spirits, if I can. "'Let me hear nothing more until I can rejoice with you "'that your husband is found.' Time advanced to the 13th of the month, and more information of the interesting sort reached Mr. Troy. The labors of the insurance commission had come to an end. The report had been received from Venice on that day. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.